0: Welcome to Alessia's Divine Comedy, a journey through Dante's masterpiece, a read-along podcast hosted by me, Alessia Cesana Harris. Uh, This is episode 39, Purgatorio, Canto Quinto, The Third Day, Midday. The best thing about this canto was that, when I opened up the page to read the text, the introductory image was Dante Gabriel Rossetti's Pier de Solomei. I don't know if you know much about the Pre-Raphaelites, or Rossetti specifically, but while Dante was one of his three given names, the two shared more than a name. They had a bond across time, a bit like Dante and Virgil. One of the inspirations on Rossetti's heart was Dante's La Vita Nuova, whom he translated. The movement is often depicted as purely a revival of medievalism, but it has close links with the Oxford movement, so this revival of medievalism went beyond the style of clothing of the subjects, into a revival of the piety and the ideas behind heart and beauty that comes from the Catholic tradition. Uh, there are a lot of themes from the nascent Ma- Anglican Mariology in Samu Rossetti's work, which included some obviously Marian ones like the 1847 poem Ave, as you might expect, this is a subject on which I could make a whole episode and perhaps even reach the one-hour mark. So the painting, like it's Beata Beatrice a couple of years later, allegedly uses the poem to tell a story about his own life. In the case of Pierre Salome, it was his mistress, Jane Morris, the wife of William Morris of the Arts and Crafts movement. And the implication was that she was kept against her will by her husband, because that's like the gist of the story that we'll see at the end of the canto, when Pia will speak. I haven't read the text yet, I've only checked the outline to know how much I was getting ahead of myself, so I don't know what other stories we'll hear today, but at least this one is a parallel of the one in the fifth canto in the Inferno, which some might argue was a better fit for Rossetti and Jane Morris since they were both married. Alas, the triptych painted of the subject was strictly a rendition in the medieval style of the story, commissioned by John Ruskin, and because the painting is from the mid-50s, Francesca was likely modelled on Elizabeth Siddle, who, at the time, was no one's wife, and later married Rosetti himself. So there is no double entendre there for overreaching critics to explore. But I guess I really need to drag myself to the poem itself and stop it with the daydreaming about Victorian Chelsea, which, contrary to popular belief, is the reason why I am so obsessed with the place not my TV guilty pleasure. Yesterday I made a comment about how it appeared that people did not notice that Dante was still alive, and the first few verses confirmed they indeed it had to be have been the case. Someone notices the shadows Dante walks away, following Virgil, who told him to make a move at the end of the last canto. This leads us into an exploration of how futile it is to worry about what other people think, which opens up some questions about Dante's feelings behind his slowing down and looking back that have occupied the commentators for as long as the poem has been around. Was he ashamed or feeling pride? I wonder if each commentator brought to the table something revealing about themselves, because if I were Dante in these circumstances, it'd be impostor syndrome galore. I would look back at the people who marveled at me, feeling like I must be trespassing somewhere I don't belong, conscious that I'm only there because someone tried to save, him, save me before it was too late, and there was nothing to admire in this. Instead, the consensus seems to be that Dante was being distracted by the people who admire him because of pride and then Dante blushes at the reproach from his master, rather than the undeserved intentions of the souls. And so they move on, conscious that being distracted by such trivial earthly concern is what led those late repentant being stuck in antipurgatory. purgatory And we meet the next set of souls who are walking to the sound of the miserere. If you're any familiar with sacred music, you'll definitely be familiar with this one. It's often on classic FM in the setting by Allegri, and it is the shorthand to mean Psalm 51, or it was 50 in the Vulgate, from its insipid Miserere mei Deus, have mercy on me, O God. It is believed that David wrote it after the events with Bathsheba. And Psalm itself had, by the 1300, uh, long in use as a model of repentance both in Judaism and Christianity. We'll be long in use after that. As some suggested, it was what St. Thomas More was reciting when going to his execution. And apparently, so did Lady Jane Grey, so this fa- sound clearly has some strong ecumenical appeal. Anyway, the scene is more like prayers in a monastery with the alternate verses than the tallest colours, and I guess it's appropriate since it's not heaven. Honestly, if you don't know what I'm talking about, Google it, this piece is stunning. I don't get how someone can hear such beauty and not have a longing for the transcendent. But anyway, this set of souls knows that Dante is alive. Stop singing and sends two of them as messengers. What happens next is rather bizarre. If you have ever been somewhere where a celebrity was assaulted by fans, you know what it looked like. Everybody was eager to speak to Dante because they wanted to secure prayers for their souls and Virgil was keen to keep Dante moving, otherwise he would be there forever, making a list of families to visit once he went back. If he ever went back, because he could have vis- easily died in the meantime. I guess. Alas, Dante wants to talk to them, and so we'll get to meet three of them. As a whole, the group is comprised of people who died a violent death and were repented at the time of this death. Jacopo del Castelo was a nobleman from Fano, who had a number of political roles both in civic duties and on the battlefield in support of the Guelphs from the Marche in one wars we've already seen with Arezzo in Florence. When Podestà in Bologna, he ended up on the wrong side of Azzo d'Este, who we've seen in Hell already and despite his attempt to avoid ever travelling through his territories, his men found him and killed him. The second soul we meet is Bonconte Bamonte Feltro, who was Guido's son. He too was a politician and a military man, involved in the same conflict as Jacopo, so by the end of this poem we will all be experts on the wars of medieval Italy. His reputation in life would have been made like a certain candidate for hell. By his father, but he managed to repent on time, despite dining in at Campaldino, and his body wasn't even recovered. He laments the fact that his widows and relatives do not care to pray for him, something that makes him ashamed. I presume, given his in purgatory that the shame might be for the things he has done in life to make the people who should love him most not care for him, rather than feeling left out like a teenager who couldn't afford a Nokia 3330 back in the day. Dante is certainly aware that his body was missing, because he fought there himself and so is asked him about it and Bonconte will give us an explanation of the facts that involves a dispute over his ultimate destination. The angel of the lord won and took him with him, so the devil that lost took revenge on his body by using the elements to make it end with an undignified tomb under the bed of a river. Then we finally meet Pierre de Tolomei who was only briefly telling us that she was born in Siena and was killed in Maremma, something that the one who married her knew well, as of course it was him who killed her or had her killed. I already alluded to her story when discussing the painting. It is commonly believed by commentators commentator that she was the unnamed wife of Nello de Pannocchieschi, who was murdered in 1297 after discovering his affair with Margherita Aldobrandeschi perhaps to pave the way for the second marriage, which indeed took place. It has been disputed by some commentators that it was this woman because the Ptolemy family had no daughter named Pia, while there is another woman who was a Ptolemy by marriage named Pia Malavolti who died in misery in Maremma after her marriage broke down as a result of her affairs. There is no proof she was murdered and the wording of the poem seemed to imply that she was indeed suggesting the one who did not respect the vows of marriage was the husband. Perhaps it was a nickname, although a nickname based on a piety would make us expect a more likely candidate for Elitz purgatory itself, if not heaven directly. Perhaps the way it's phrased is not meant to be taken as objective reflection of the facts, but in its poetic echoes from DNA. According to a Landers commentary in the Dante Lab at Dartmouth, Verse 134 is modelled on Virgil's own epitaph, and the verses that follow echo his depiction of Dido talking about her late husband, and this is an understanding he took from Hermann Gemblin, or however you pronounce that. Anyway, As always, we can assume that the lack of detail was due to the reference being beyond reasonable doubt in the mind of Dante's contemporaries, but unfortunately no real records have come down to us to clarify which woman it was. Whatever the truth, plenty of art has been created on the understanding of a wrong woman, including an opera by Donizetti, which offers yet another version of the story, and possibly even a more tragic one, as you probably expect from an opera. Anyway, it's an impressive achievement for a character that had the space of seven mere verses. Until tomorrow. Thank you for listening to today's episode of Alessia's Divine Comedy, a journey through Dante's masterpiece. Thank you also to Alexander Nacarada for the music which is fun for ten, or ets if it was not meant as a Roman numeral, and is available in the public domain. You can find me on Twitter and Instagram at alessia__chick or on my blog www.chickandcatholic.com.